0: I'd like to thank both Dr. Bartos and Dr. DeStefano for having me, and I'm excited to share with you this morning a story of when the Old West of ranchers, loggers, and miners met with the New West that contains environmentalists and that was shifting to industries like technology and tourism. So this is a story of heated conflict, but I'd submit to you it's also about change and how people adapted the change and refused to adapt to the change. It's also a story about how the Old West, despite being quote-unquote old, really stayed current and adapted to modern circumstances, um, and adjusted to shifting political and economic currents. As well, um, it's also about how the Old West really became new in a lot of ways. So in the example we're gonna talk about today, from the 1990s, one group, the Owyhee Cattlemen's Association, located in Owyhee County, Idaho, tried to hold on to part of what made the West really, the West for them. They did so using new arguments and political appeals that, from a national economic discourse um, as, they reframed, as they reframed old demands for access to and the use of public lands um, in a new form by employing the language of neoliberalism, um, which was the dominant economic theory of the day, and they extended it to the new context of the West and to public lands. So, one disclaimer before we begin. All the images in this presentation are used here only under the Fair Use Doctrine for the purposes of criticism, comment, and teaching. Um, The final slide has information on where these images came from, and I'm happy to provide full information on any particular image for anyone who's interested. Where we jump into the story is January 18, 1994. On this date, the Wahee Cattlemen's Association, which I'll also call the OCA for short, has joined with other groups in the Save Western Ways Rally taking place in Boise, Though the attendees came from different backgrounds and different industries, including throughout the natural resource industries, they were united by their shared desire to defend their way of life, that depended on the use of public lands, and continued access to natural resources. They believed that changes occurring in Idaho, and really throughout the West, threaten this way of life. Idaho's population had been increasing rapidly, it's still happening, but over the 15 years about prior to this rally, the population had skyrocketed by 20%, and the economy had started shifting from sectors um, like ranching and timber that were declining to other to new sectors like technology and just general services economy. As well, the individuals felt that there was increasingly th- increasing threat from environmentalists um, who were challenging their use of the land and who um, were fighting for greater preservation efforts. Even as the attendees at the rally were arguing that existing federal regulations were already hampering their ability to make a living from the lands that they had used for generations. So, though the rally included speeches from sympathetic politicians and former federal officials, and it also included uh, an appearance by the OCA's president himself, it was preceded by what the participants called a parade of endangered people. So it was essentially a protest march. In the parade, approximately 450 protesters processed through downtown Boise, demanding that the federal government stop interfering with their jobs, their property rights, and their lives just generally. What had upset them most immediately was something called Rangeland Reform 94. So basically a 1994 rangeland reform proposal. It came from the administration of the then incumbent President Bill Clinton, and it was intended to address public lands grazing issues that had existed for a century. Spearheaded by Secretary of the Interior Bruce Babbitt, this proposal called for, among other changes, an increase in the fees charged to ranchers who graze livestock on federal lands and some other um, changes. Now understandably, um, some western ranchers who relied on federal grazing allotments perceived these reforms to be a part of a war on the west as it was phrased at the time. Um, You guys may very well remember that, that language. And they sought to block any amendment to the existing fee structure or any changes to the administrative regime for grazing. And so I would submit to you that rangeland reform was a particularly important question in Idaho. Idaho is more than 60% public lands, and really how that land is used and managed plays a very, played, and still does play a very large role in Idaho's economy and the livelihoods of its residents. So at this point, we really had a situation where lines had been drawn between those on one side, like the protesters, who contended that ranching was an important economic pursuit, and a way of life worthy of protection, and on the other, by those who saw ranching as a failing economic venture that damaged the environment and depended on federal subsidies to survive. Now this debate, as I'm sure many of you are aware, though it was reinvigorated in the 1990s, it wasn't new. So to fully understand really what was happening in the State of Western Ways Rally, I just want to back up a little more than a decade and just kind of go through um, a little bit of the history of Western land uh, movements, really. So, in fact, a lot of people saw the broader movement of which uh, the Save Western Ways rally was a part as um, a sort of second coming of the Sagebrush Rebellion, which I'm sure most all of you are familiar with. The Sagebrush Rebellion was really just a manifestation of predominantly rural Westerners' discontent with the federal authority and federal land management policies that took place in the late 1970s and early 1980s. This opposition to government interference and regulation did not start with the ascendancy of neoliberalism that was taking place at loosely the same time, um, and we'll set neoliberalism aside and talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Um, but it did fall in line with a long pattern of anger over the federal role in the West. I mean, it's hard to generalize, but ranchers as a body pretty much always opposed government regulations on grazing lands in the West. Um, individuals certainly differed in their personal views, but if the profession could be said to have a collective view, it was that they needed to be left alone, given control, and trusted in how they used the land. So, the Sagebrush Rebellion kind of cooled off a little bit in the early 1980s, Um, when self-declared sagebrush rebel Ronald Reagan was elected president. Um, And as president, he implemented reforms to reduce regulations on federal lands, to limit the enforcement of environmental provisions, and to move the American economy more generally in the direction of the free market. Yet, for our purposes, it's important to recognize that the embers of dissatisfaction remained, even with those changes. And by the early 1990s, we'd yeah. entered a second era that's often called the War for the West, or the Sagebrush II. Um, and that, we'll talk about that today, but that also didn't resolve the issue. Um, and it stuck around, and it developed into something that in two, roughly in the 2009 and 2016 time period, or some would argue through the present day, um, developed into something that's called that's the, been called the Patriot Rebellion. But kind of stepping back to, to Reagan... Reagan was a devoted proponent of neoliberalism, Um, and I've been throwing that around, so it's only fair that I try to define it for you guys. Um, So, though the definitions vary, neoliberalism is generally an economic approach that advocates for removing restrictions on the exercise of capitalism. Essentially, unencumbered capitalism is the idea behind neoliberalism. It arose from the thinking of conservative economists and business leaders who became disenchanted with New Deal liberalism, Um, and kind of how the government was becoming really involved in uh, the economy and in people's lives. Uh, But its intellectual roots really stretch back to the 18th century and 19th century and just kind of longer-held American beliefs in individualism, free trade, and laissez-faire capitalism, which of course just means let them do what they please. Just let them do what they want. So those same beliefs in individual rights and freedoms... um, they also helped to fuel what it's called, like we call the frontier, right? The frontier ideology, um, the idea that Western expansion shaped America's character um, and made us into independent and democratic uh, people. So neoliberalism started around the time of the New Deal, but it wasn't really until like the Culture Wars of the 1960s um, and the economic crises of the 1970s that a lot of Americans really started thinking that a new economic approach was needed, um, and neoliberalism really had opportunities to gain converts uh, among the broader public and to become implemented on a uh, much grander scale. And that took place with the rise of the new right in the late 70s and 80s and the election of Reagan in 1980. Um, And that allowed the neoliberal vision of deregulation, uh, the privatization of public functions, and the free market to really become the economic consensus in America by the early 1990s. By the 1990s, there really was no one on the national level in America who was suggesting anything other than neoliberal economic policies within the mainstream. So it was in that time period that Bill Clinton proposed to reform the administration of grazing um, on federal lands um, that had essentially been unchanged since the Taylor Grazing Act of 1934, Um, and also changed the fee structure to graze on those lands, which... Um, had, hadn't been touched, hadn't been modified since a 1978 act. And I'll try to stay out of the weeds too much, because that's kind of where I live. I kind of do too much background, I think. But um, it's safe to say that the rates to graze private land were about five and a half times the cost to graze on public land. So public land was a lot cheaper to graze, um, but there are a lot of arguments about why that was. So. The Clinton administration's plan, which was called Rangeland Reform 94, um, and was championed most directly by Secretary Babbitt, who I think kind of due to this has kind of become a a persona non grata in a lot of parts of the West. Um, It began actually in 1993 as a legislative proposal to change the rules for the upcoming uh, 1994 grazing year. And essentially what the federal government was seeking to do was to assert greater control over federal land, and to connect grazing fees more closely to the forage value of the land, and thus to private rates, this change would have resulted um, across the board in increased grazing fees. Although part of those fees could be offset um, if individual ranchers demonstrated environmental stewardship—if they proved, to I guess, the government's satisfaction, that they were taking care of the land. So the legislative effort. Uh, failed in November 1993 and met substantial opposition in Congress, um, largely from Western congressmen but from some others as well, and it was actually uh, filibustered to death in the Senate. So in response, Secretary Babbitt put forward administrative changes uh, that encompassed many of the same reforms, and he started putting that together in late 1993 and early 1994, Um, and that is part of what precipitated the Save Western Ways rally. this headline made me laugh when I saw it, because I'm um, knowing the history and kind of how heated it became. Um, but Secretary Bad really thought that he was going to please everybody with his reforms, but I can, we can rest assured that's not what happened. Um, instead, the debate over these reforms brought to a head the long, simmering difference of opinion over the use of federal land management and kind of put the issue of uh, the changing economy in the West into like um, uh, really raised relief. So, while Western ranchers phrased these changes as an attack on their way of life, the crucial question here really was economic. Um, that was really what was at the foundation. Should the government set grazing fees on public lands in closer accord with the private market, or should its agencies maintain a system that made these lands available to existing permit holders at discounted rates? So, when Western rangers excuse me, Western ranchers responded to Rangeland Reform 94, they drew upon the neoliberal ideas that were just kind of out there throughout the economy that was kind of the language of the day. Um, and I would submit to you that the results were kind of unexpected and ironic because when, when this happened in Idaho, the local controversies like the rally that we talked about and the national economic discourse, they really didn't mesh well. They collided, and it resulted in the OCA, the OID Cattlemen's Association, really advocating... Or rhetoric that welcomed government intervention and subsidies while paradoxically embracing the principles of neoliberalism that condemned those very same things. So it's interesting because the Western, these Western ranchers actually use the ideology's language but not its actual goals in trying to preserve their industry. Um, so just kind of to center Hawaii County. And, doesn't border Montana, so I wasn't sure kind of how familiar people might be with Owyhee County. It's actually in red here in the southwestern corner of Idaho. It uh, abuts Ada County, which is um, home of uh, Boise, which is the capital, which is the Black Star. If you're able to see right there, this doesn't show up so well. Um, so Owyhee County is a very large and rugged, but an absolutely beautiful place. Uh, it stretches over 100 miles from end to end and um, it's larger than the state of New Jersey in land area, so it, it's pretty substantial. To try to put it in a little bit more local context, it's about 10 and a half times the size of Silver Bow County, um, and it's more than 2,100 square miles larger than the largest county in Montana, which I believe is Beaverhead County, is that correct? Um, it is, however, only the second largest county in Idaho. Idaho County is even more massive. Um, so, environmentally, Hawaii is dominated by sagebrush steppe, um, and it's relied on a predominantly agricultural economy since the wane of a mining boom in the late 19th century. Uh, basically, since its beginning, it's in 1863. It's been home to, to cattle herds, and um, it's still a major industry in the in the county. And I think um, cattle outnumber people by more than ten to one. So it's there's a, there's a lot of cows wandering around a very large area. Um, and importantly. Given like the, the, the environmental conditions there, most of the herds there need access to both lower and higher elevation lands that they can move to with the seasons in order to secure adequate forage. So that's part of what makes federal land important for most of the Owyhee ranchers. So here we have um, a scene from an Waikiki Cattlemen's Association convention. I think this is from the um, early 80s, so not quite our time period, and um, the organization's own brand. But, you know, as a cattlemen's association, the OCA advocated for its local rancher members as well as its industry more broadly. It traces its lineage to 1878. Um, and claims to be the oldest cattleman's group in Idaho, although that's a little bit debated since the organization only operated as a continuous um, group in the post-World War II period. As of 1994, they had about 236 members, but I think in this context it's better to think of that as 236 families that were members and engaged in um, ranching or similar economic pursuits. Um, and the group actively opposed Rangeland and Reform 94, both directly and in concert with other cattlemen's associations. And the organization and its allies very explicitly framed the debate as an attack on the West, as part of the war on the West by the Clinton administration. And they framed their political appeals using the neoliberal discourse that was pre- prevalent then. So they tried to fashion a brand of neoliberalism that appealed to public sentiment about the idea of the mythical West as a source of American character traits, like individualism and self-reliance, and that um, incorporated more like modern and tangible efforts to protect their own personal economic interests. So, despite talking about Western independence and neoliberal market freedom, it was economic, like I mentioned before. The rancher's ideology centered on maintaining government support, even as it rejected common neoliberal prescriptions that might give them greater control over that land, like privatization or the market allocation of resources. So as such, kind of the brand of neoliberalism that the OCA had offered um, embraced a contradiction. They weren't merely saying one thing and doing another, but they were really saying one thing when they meant something altogether different, right? Um, they didn't seek the implementation of a free market or the privatization of assets, but instead the exact opposite. They wanted the assurance that a publicly-owned asset would remain available for their use at low market uh, prices that were effectively subsidized by taxpayer dollars. So what they didn't acknowledge in this whole debate was that their autonomous way of life depended on ranchers continuing to access public grazing lands at discounted rates rather than market rates. So in this way, they kind of embraced an ideology that was anti-neoliberal to its core, but that was framed in the form of contemporary neoliberal arguments. Here we have a couple uh, ranchers in Hawaii County. So, as I, as I kind of was talking about Port, this strategy drew upon a long legacy of ranchers expressing dis- dissatisfaction with the federal government while simultaneously kind of asking for its help. Throughout the Sagebrush Rebellion, um, the OCA repeatedly expressed that it wished its members to be left alone by the federal government, but at the same time, um, adopted formal resolutions that asked for the government to um, protect its public image and to to make sure that ranchers weren't depicted negatively. So they were both asking to be left alone and asking for help at the same time. Um, They also sought the removal of grazing regulations um, kind of throughout their existence, but these really kind of, these efforts really kind of peaked and increased as we came up on Ranchland Reform 94. So after the Senate uh, filibuster killed off the legislative proposal, Um, the OCA jumped into action and started putting forward its own plans um, to combat what really they saw as an existential threat to to their way of life. Um, So what they ended up doing is offering their own proposals for how the government should change grazing uh, grazing fees and the of grazing lands. And they called it a pre-market formula based on more than 100 years of congressional policy that has established, stabilized, and maintained a free market economy upon which the Western livestock industry um, depends. And so, what's interesting about this proposal is that neoliberalism is everywhere and nowhere in the proposal. It's everywhere in words, but nowhere in substance. They called it a free market formula, but it wasn't based on the operations of the free market of everybody just kind of doing what they wanted and letting the price go where it may. Instead, it was based on maintaining the discount that ranchers had had for the use of federal land. Um, Now, not everybody um, kind of refused or didn't acknowledge this uh, disparity. Um, A lot of critics at the time, even on the right, readily recognized kind of the incongruity in the OCA's approach to managing public lands for grazing. So on the more libertarian side of the right, came the critique that, um, that they were all taught, right? um, if you will indulge me in a, a metaphor, all hat, no cattle, um, in the sense that they talked a big game about free markets and freedom, but when asked um, to put things into practice, they sought subsidies and government protection from competition. For instance, they didn't seek the privatization of the land that their cattle grazed. In their view, that was unnecessary since they um, believed that they had a property right dating back to ranchers' use of um, the rangelands in the late 19th century. So they thought they had a vested property right to graze the lands and that they therefore shouldn't be subject to um, greater fees and and, uh, charges on that. In this respect, I won't get into it too much, but in this respect, it echoed the thinking of individuals like Wayne Hage, um, who engaged in a like two and a half decade long court battle with the federal government that was ultimately unsuccessful in establishing this kind of property right, um, but that decision didn't come until um, after his death and more than two decades after Rangelin Reform ninety four. So the OCA um, went through a couple iterations of its plans, but like the fundamental um, outcome didn't change. It claimed to be free market. It claimed to just say leave us alone and kind of let it, let the market function as it as it happens but that wasn't what they were actually asking for. They were actually asking for the government to remain there to make sure that only they could um, obtain grazing permits, and that they would still continue to pay about a fifth uh, of the private grazing, rate. Right? So, um won't talk too much about him, but this is Ted Hoffman, who was the OCA's president at the time. He. Um, is a veterinarian um, and is a rancher. Um, interestingly though, only grazes on private lands, doesn't graze on public lands, because in his opinion, it's not worth the hassle. Um, he was very active in, in just contacting political representatives. He sent a letter directly to President Clinton demanding that um, Secretary Babbitt be fired immediately um, for outrageous, unprecedented uh, appropriation of power. And he would also testify at hearings and in various um, other forums and basically saw it as a plan to kind of push ranchers off the land and turn the land over to environmentalists. And so, ultimately, Range reform 94 and Ninety Four didn't happen. We still have, in the present day, the same um, grazing fee regime and largely the same structure um, as was taking place in nineteen ninety four and going back even further. Um, it's not clear, though, that this defeat was due kind of to the content of these proposals so much as ranchers' general uh, ability to influence political uh, figures. And um, really, their ability to adapt to circumstances, I think, was key. So, as with anything, I think really the ultimate question is, why is this story important? Why is it worth telling? Why am I bothering um, subjecting you guys to it today? Um, So, I would submit to you that it's, you know, there's a couple things, right? So, I think the this whole scenario makes clear that a lot of Western ranchers, like the OCA's members, did not truly aspire to institute neoliberalism respect of public lands. The free market was really the last thing that they wanted. In the free market, they could lose control of public lands, they could lose their privileged access to them. Um, and they never openly acknowledged that contradiction like so many of us do. Um, perhaps it was because they never, to them, thought it was a contradiction, because really that's just the way grazing had been in the West since it began. Um, they viewed the 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 public land use in the West through kind of a historic lens that dated to Western expansion, um, which was a time period when the federal government in order to incentivize settlement actually just turned uh, public resources over to people for private use um, without too many restrictions. Um, But also, it also kind of reflects on neoliberalism, which itself also kind of like any theory, um, kind of when the rubber meets the road um, is changed. So, um, it's easy to kind of have a theory, but when you put it into practice, um, it's a lot harder when putting a theory into practice is going to hurt your own interests. And that kind of leads to instances where um, even Ronald Reagan, who by all accounts is a devoted proponent of neoliberalism, actually went against his own economic theory when it would benefit his base on occasion and to benefit him politically. So, I think though what stands out most in this scenario is really the originality of the OCA's arguments how they integrated broader currents of Western thought regarding public lands and the federal government alongside the neoliberal ideology. Um, Like many other Westerners, these ranchers opposed the federal government's dominant presence in their communities, and like many other professed adherents of neoliberalism, they adjusted kind of how that theory was implemented to suit their own interests. So ultimately, the resulting product was the invention of a unique Western strain of neoliberalism that tapped into nostalgia for the cowboy way of life but that still kept a firm hold on the bottom line. Um, So here are the credits for the images, and I'm happy to try to explain stuff more clearly if you guys have questions or anything at the end. Thank you.